This episode of On the Beat is brought to you by Ingles. Shop online with Ingles curbside pickup. New curbside stores opening every week. Please welcome Mike Griffith. Well, hey everybody, Mike Griffith here, and welcome to tonight's Ingles On the Beat. This is a bye week for Georgia. You can see the stadium's empty, not full. Okay, well, this particular picture, it's always empty. You know, I'm proud of this picture. I just want to tell you this. A lot of times you'll see people that'll use the screen grabs or screenshots behind them of cool pictures they found on the internet. And I've got a couple like that too that I used. But I actually took this picture when I lived in Athens, in downtown Athens, my first year on the beat. I would go for walks through campus all the time trying to stay fit. And I caught Sanford Stadium at the perfect moment when I took this picture. You can see the red behind me, and that's just the way the sun was shining. So I'll get out of the way so you can admire the shadows of the scoreboard. You know, I was, I'm really proud of this picture, right? Because I thought, oh, this is such a beautiful picture of uh, Sanford Stadium. And I think it's a lot of fun, too. I always enjoy, um, you know, uh, Sanford Stadium. And obviously, I was there for the Vanderbilt game. A lot of people said, well, geez, why didn't you go to the Alabama-Tennessee game? Because I've been doing some SEC-wide stuff. You know, we've really looked for different ways at Dog Nation to enhance our coverage. Next week, in fact, I'll be in Gainesville during the week so that I can interview Billy Napier and Florida players and hear what they're saying about Georgia. Of course, Connor Riley covering Georgia. So we like to move it around a little bit and provide some different perspectives and unique coverage that you can't get anywhere else. But I was at Georgia Vanderbilt because I thought this was a very important game. You know, seeing what Kirby did with the backup quarterback when Carson Beck went in, seeing some of these young guys emerge like Dylan Bell, I just felt like Georgia needed a game to quote unquote get right. Because there was times the first half of the season when Georgia did not look like the number one team. Now, I'm going to kind of cycle back. Let's let's refresh, hit the refresh button. The Oregon game was unbelievable. I could have never, would have never believed that Georgia could look that good against a Dan Lanning coach team. Now, in all fairness, Dan was still getting to know everybody's first name, so to speak, right? You see Oregon now, and I think they've scored 41 points in every game since then, bona fide top 10 team, could win the Pac-12, actually favored to win the Pac-12 after we saw USC stumble at Utah the other night. I've been told UCLA is not for real. They're undefeated. They could lose this week at Oregon, so let's keep an eye on that game. But getting back to how good Georgia played, you just said, holy cow. Well, here's what you saw. You saw Todd Munkin with an entire offseason to devise a game plan and have a pretty good idea what Dan was going to do. One, and two, you saw the Georgia offense designed around the strengths of Stetson Bennett. So much of our offseason conversation was, hey, this is the first time Stetson has been in the number one quarterback in the offseason, and he can lead as the number one quarterback, and they can design things around him as the number one quarterback. And you saw the net effect. South Carolina hadn't caught up to it either, by the way. 48-6 to six against the Gamecocks in Columbia. Stetson looked that great. As the season progressed, we saw some teams catch up to it. You know, I didn't think Georgia looked real sharp against Kent State, maybe overlooking them because what is Kent State? Now, we know MAC is a good conference. But to these players, I don't think it's realistic to think that they could approach that game with the same sort of enthusiasm that they would an SEC team. So we kind of gave them a pass. But then at Missouri, Missouri's D coordinator dialed some things up, closed that defense in closer to the line and said, you know what, we're going to make Stetson Bennis be as deep, especially with Adani Mitchell out. So they know the dogs are missing their ex-receiver, Adani. They probably know that Lad's got a bad foot. 
And so they changed their coverage and and they pressed. And Missouri gave Georgia a really hard time. The dogs not scoring in that game until their sixth possession shut out in the first quarter. And we all saw how Georgia responded with that great road comeback in the fourth quarter down 10. Pulled that one out of the fire saying, okay, that's a close call. Following week against Auburn, it took Georgia four series to get on the board. Auburn learning a lot from the Missouri game. Teams are changing it up now. And so that means Munkin, the chess master, he has to make changes. And he has to do it with lesser personnel. Again, McConkey just now starting to look like himself. Adani Mitchell still sidelined. Eric Gilbert, we finally saw him catch a pass. Hadn't played in that game. And then this last game, right? Finally, Georgia puts it all together. Now, it's true. Vanderbilt was 130th out of 131 in pass defense and 126 in total defense. And, and they were playing their third straight top 10 team. But all that said, the Commodores were leading Ole Miss at halftime 2017 uh, the week before. So it, it's not like this was, you know, a, just a terrible team. I mean, Clark Lee has done some good things there. But I was so impressed with how Kirby had those guys dialed in for that game. And I talked with Stetson Bennett after the game, and he said, you know, that was a big focus. Yeah, Alabama, Tennessee was going on, and there were fireworks, and Stetson said, look, we went into this game saying, look, we got to take care of business. We're playing an SEC East game. We can't have any sort of distractions or begin to wonder what's happening somewhere else. Now, Stetson said, yeah, now that the game's over, we're going to check it out. But the focus was on this game. And I thought Stetson looked as good throwing the ball downfield as he has all year. Now, his completion numbers were wonderful against Oregon and South Carolina. But this particular game, Stetson made, I think, six or seven throws of over 20 yards through the air, air yards, right? Not a gain of 20, but how far downfield does the ball travel? And this affects the confidence Stetson has in his arm, his receivers, but also the defenses see, oh, my gosh, this guy does have an arm that can beat us. Georgia can beat us downfield. This is going to affect how future teams play Georgia now that Stetson has shown that, yes, he can air it out. We talked last week about where Georgia ranked on plays of 20 air yards or more, and it was near the bottom of the league. And he said, well, here's what's going wrong. Teams are seizing this. They're moving up. They're pressuring, bringing more guys close to the line of scrimmage. And that just gums up everything. You want this field spread out because it gives your receivers more room to work one, but also opens up the run game a little bit when those safeties are playing deeper, right? So I thought that was a very important adjustment for Georgia to be able to get Stetson some time protection, number one, two, and he had confidence in his arm. Now, he did say this. As I asked him, I said, Stat, how did that feel to be able to put the ball 20 yards downfield? He said, well, I was able to get warmed up and I felt good. And he never said he felt bad, but that kind of implied to me he was able to get warmed up and felt good, like as opposed to, as opposed to, yes, his shoulder was bothering him, I believe, far more than he let on, far more than Kirby Smart. And he said, well, why wouldn't they tell you? Because they don't want the other team to game plan. They sort of game planned anyway, but they were guessing at it. You don't want to give away that sort of information. I'll never forget uh, the 2015 college football playoffs. I was covering Michigan State and Connor Cook. And yeah, Alabama won 38-0, to but here's what people don't know. Connor Cook screwed up his shoulder in the last regular season game, and he wasn't able to air that thing out. He wasn't able to throw the deep ball. That's why Alabama was so effective. It wasn't like, oh, well, Michigan State must have really sucked. No, no, they were much, much, much better when their quarterback could put the ball 30, 40, 50 yards downfield. 
Alabama knew that that Michigan State had a quarterback with a lame duck deep arm, and so they were able to play him completely differently. That was why that game turned out the way it did, because of the information they had. Interestingly enough, one of the ways they found out was through a senior bowl scout that had been through East Lansing to scout some guys for the senior bowl and and, and kind of turned in that information. They say, there's always people that are trying to search out and seek information. You wonder why sometimes Kirby Smart is so secretive and protective and not having open practices. Little things can make a difference. When the other team knows your personnel, they know your limitations, and they can project what you're going to do. So some thoughts there and why I think it was so important that Stetson was able to show that he could get the ball downfield. Because now if you're Florida, now if you're Tennessee, as you start to examine the Georgia film and you see a quarterback, that's completing passes of over 20 yards. I think Stetson had seven completions of over 20 air yards through the first six games. I think he had six or seven against Vanderbilt alone. And those passes were well thrown, I might add. Another thing to consider, Carson Beck came off the bench. Now, look, there's no quarterback controversy. You got some people out there that just freak out anytime you mention that there's another good quarterback. These people need to chill out, okay? Stetson Bennett's going to be the guy as long as he's healthy. He's Kirby Smart's choice, and he's got confidence, and he's been in some big-time games. That said, it was huge for Georgia to see Carson Beck go out there and play like he did. I mean, the guy completed his first, what, seven or eight passes, and he's throwing BBs. He throws the ball harder than Stetson, all right? There's no doubt about it. He throws the ball as hard as anybody I've seen in a long, long time, and it reminded me of when we had Jake Fromm on one of our Dog Nation specials from Marlowe's earlier this year, and Jake broke down each quarterback. And when we asked him about Carson Beck, Jake said prototypical NFL quarterback. And that was a mouthful because that's the only player that Jake described like that. And, and Jake is, you guys know, I mean, Jake's about as straightforward as it comes, you know, whether he should be or shouldn't. Uh, he did. He just kind of said a prototypical guy. Doesn't move as fast, doesn't have the mobility that Stett does. But the arm, uh, impressive. And for Georgia to be able to trot a number two out there like that and come off the bench and play that well. I think Carson has shown us twice now. I think we saw it against South Carolina, and now we've seen it against Vanderbilt, another SEC team, that Georgia has championship depth at that position. Remember last year, JT Daniels was the guy. He was the guy that was the number one the whole offseason, organized all the workouts. The offense was designed around him. He gets hurt, and George is able to put Stetson in there, and then Stetson has the storybook season, uh, offensive MVP, the Orange Bowl, offensive MVP. That's championship depth. Not many teams can put another guy in that's that ready. The fact that Carson Beck is ready is important. Now, maybe, maybe it's a moot point. Maybe Stetson doesn't get hurt. Everything's groovy. There's never any reason to make a change. But just knowing that there is a number two like that, in my mind, increases Georgia's championship odds, doubles it dramatically. If something happens to Stetson, I got a feeling this offense will keep cooking, just like Stetson was able to step in. Now, there's no reason to think something will happen to Stetson. I mean, I don't know anything you don't know. I mean, we know his shoulder was bothering him and not bothering him anymore. Looked awful good against Vanderbilt. But Kirby Smart said, when you've got a running quarterback, that's something that could happen. Kirby talked about that. He was asked after the game the importance of Carson Beck's performance, and I thought Kirby did a great job putting that into perspective. So that was really big. Dylan Bell with five kids, that was big too. Now, I expected Donnie Mitchell back for the Florida game. That was a high ankle sprain that he had in game two. Nobody wanted to come out and say that. Clearly, he's been out this long. That's what it was. 
getting AD back, but getting AD back at the A-plus level. You don't want an AD who's still playing himself. No, you need AD back at that elite level that he was at when he was making those tremendous catches towards the end of last year, earlier this season. you got to get AD back. I thought it was significant, and I know a lot of people are just saying, oh, feel good for Eric Gilbert, blah, blah. I think Eric Gilbert, for Georgia to win a championship, I believe Eric Gilbert needs to be one of the pieces on the chessboard. I think he's dynamic, and I think he's game-changing. Now, that said, Kirby Smart has made it very clear that he is going to manage this guy's personal health issues above what his football potential is. In other words, Kirby's going to keep this kid's personal and best interest over the football interest. And he said it early on. Now, a lot of coaches says, say that, but how many of them actually do it? So you've seen Kirby Smart prioritize Eric's health over what he could do for the football team. I think that seeing Eric come off the bench, and granted it was late, but make his first catch as a Georgia Bulldog and his first touchdown catch, I think this can help Eric in a lot of different ways. And I think Eric could be a very key piece as Georgia moves forward in this final stretch. Now, we're going to have Jeremy Pruitt on, and Jeremy's going to give us a lot of insight uh, into what that means the rest of this schedule. I thought, it would, you know, Jeremy called it last week. He told us that those pass interference calls in Tennessee, Alabama, he said how they p- call that could play a big role in the game. He was so right. Any of you that watched the Alabama-Tennessee game saw how they called that game in the secondary. If they don't call that game a certain way, I don't think Tennessee wins, but Coach Pruitt was on top of that. We're going to ask him about Georgia's performance against Vandy, uh, what he, what some of the mentality is for Kirby during the bye week. You're going to get a lot of insight from a guy that worked side-by-side side with Kirby for six years, worked for Saban for eight or nine, kind of tell us what's going on in the minds of these coaches and what he's seeing, what his trained eye is seeing from this program. So I think you're really going to enjoy that. Uh, I had a lot of fun I doing a uh, stock report. Uh, earlier uh, Monday on Dog Nation. I did the whole stock up, stock down thing. It's kind of an old uh, item I picked up out of the Birmingham News. They used to do that back in the 90s. And I said, you know, that's a pretty cool way of a uh, kind of evaluating a team. I'll do a report card, a mid-season report card later this week and rank the games as well. I'm still going to have some content for Dog Nation. Really looking forward to that. But whose stock is soaring? Well, I'll tell you, Kenny McIntosh scored the first two touchdowns against Vanderbilt. And Kenny is a guy that Georgia is managing very carefully. Kenny is the back that they know they have to have down the stretch with his versatility. Run the ball, catch the ball. We've seen great things from Branson Robinson. We've seen great things from Dejon Edwards. Neither one of them uh, can catch the ball like Kenny, and neither one of them uh, have the home run hitting speed that Kenny does. So this is the back. George has been able to keep healthy. Got to have him healthy for the stretch run. So I thought it was big that he got going. I didn't think there was any after effects from that thigh injury that he'd been playing with uh, in the first half of the season. Looked really good on that swing pass that Stetson threw, cut back, blew past two Commodores, and then had a seven-yard touchdown run. I think Kenny's stock is soaring. I think he's in a really good place. How about Jack Podlesny? One of the team captains, you don't see that often. Uh, of course, Rodrigo kind of spoiled us. But now we're seeing Jack Podlesny step into that captain role. 12 of 15 on his field goals this year. Uh, 28 to 28 on point after attempts. Does a great job with his kickoffs. Uh, I think Jack Podlesny's stock is soaring. Darnell Washington, right? So Vanderbilt came in and they were determined that Brock Bowers wasn't going to beat them. You saw that. He had four or five catches, but only 15 yards. They had Commodores all over him. Meanwhile, Darnell's out there and they're trying to single cover him. Good luck. 
four catches, 78 yards for big zero, 280-pound load. I'm telling you this, man. I guarantee you Todd Munkin has more plays with Darnell. We just haven't seen them. I really believe that Georgia has got more material. Kirby's got some cards up his sleeve. I think we're going to see a lot of Darnell Washington down the stretch. His stock is soaring. I said Kirby Smart stock soaring. And, and I know that when you cover a team, anytime you praise the team, a lot of people go, you know, you're just such a homer, road, rose-colored goggles. But what Kirby's done after losing 15 NFL draft picks, man, I got to tell you, I've never seen it. And, and nobody's seen it. Nobody, first of all, no program's ever lost 15 guys in one draft, much less in this era where there's this transfer portal. They lost 13 more, 13 to the portal, 15. That's 28 guys that Kirby lost. And here's Georgia, number one in the country. Granted, it's midseason, and, and Kirby doesn't want to hear any compliments right now. He's not going to get complacent, but I'm impressed. And uh, I think you got to you know give Kirby a shout-out. He'd have to be – if the season were to end today, he'd have to be the coach of the year. I mean, look, I know Josh Heupel's done a good job up there, but, man, Georgia's number one, and they lost so many components. Um, and their defense is, what, number two in the nation in scoring defense after losing five, uh, what, five first-round picks and eight guys, and they're still number two. That's unbelievable. Uh, stock up, okay? Stetson Bennett and Carson Beck. As I said, very important to have that get-right game. I thought both quarterbacks looked really good, very comfortable on the offense. Um, Eric Gilbert, stock up on the field, playing, catching passes. Young man needed that. Lad McConkey. Look, I know Lad had a rough game, but when you're playing with with a painful foot injury, it gets in your head. I don't know how many of you have ever been injured and, and and tried to play sports while you're injured. It's usually not a very good idea. Um, so yeah, Lad had a tough game, but he's way past it. He looked like him old his old self out there. Uh, man, some of those punt returns where he's jumping around and making jump cuts, uh, you're just you're just your mind just can't. You're like, wait a minute, you know, it kind of looked like a when a squirrel crosses the road in traffic and you're like, holy cow, you wonder how they didn't get, that's kind of lad on the punt returns. You're like, my goodness, he's fast and quick. And I thought he looked really good. Dylan Bell stock up, team high five catches, 54 yards and a touchdown. Might've had another one on that play where it looked like he spun out when they, when they but they ruled, I guess they ruled his elbows down. And good to see Dominic Blaylock get a touchdown catch. That's his first TD catch since the injury. Great for Dom's confidence. That's a guy who's worked really hard to get back. Another guy that I think will have to be a bigger part of the equation if George is going to repeat his national champions. Stock even, right? I'm not going to say anybody stock down after 55 to zero. Stock even though. Brock Bowers only 15 yards receiving. Uh, listen, when you're Brock Bowers and you're the best tight end in, in football, it's kind of hard for your stock to go up, right? So we're going to say he held even with that with only 15 yards. Jamon Dumas Johnson. Led the team in tackles, you know, but JDJ, as I say in my stock report today, he's just like Brock Bowers. He is so good that it's it's hard for his stock to go up because he's played so well. So stock even is not an insult. It's just saying, okay, he didn't have a Superman game. He had a good game. Uh, and that's even because that's what we expect. Keely Ringo, uh, drop pick six. Hey, if he's going to drop a pick six, Better be against Vanderbilt with a 34-point lead than in a national championship when, oh, by the way, uh, he had the oil painting moment with the return for a touchdown that locked down the Georgia Bulldogs' first national championship in 41 years. You like my Brian Kelly there. So uh, some real excitement this last weekend uh, against Bandy. I will say, seeing the Sanford Stadium uh, exit and the fans streaming out, 
and the stadium's only half full. And I'm thinking, normally when I'm in a stadium like this, it means that the home team is losing so bad. This is different. Everybody's leaving because the home team is winning by so many points. So I was like, wow, okay then, Georgia fans. Because, oh, hum, just another big win. I'll tell you, Kirby Smart is spoiling the dogs. And I know the Georgia fans love that. Uh, I want to take a halftime break right now. Want to thank our sponsor, Ingles, for standing behind us, standing behind you, being there for us in our toughest of times. When we come back, Jeremy Pruitt will join us for the remainder of our Ingles on the Beach show. Now check out this message from our sponsor. Did you know that Ingles sells more organics than any other store? Or that they run their own dairy? Or that they only serve USDA choice and prime meat? Did you know that they have more local craft beer than any place else? Or that they have energy smart stores? Or that they professionally slice and package imported cheese from Europe? Did you know about their giant international aisle, local farm partnerships, curbside pickup, wine department? Or that they donate 3,956 meals a day to local food banks? Well, now you do. It's all in the bag. Ingles, low prices, love the savings. Welcome back to the show. And as promised uh, each week, uh, Coach Jeremy Pruitt joins us. Uh, a guy with a lot of experience, uh, certainly been a lot of places, done a lot of things. And, and we always appreciate Coach coming on. I want to start out, Coach, with the Georgia game. I mean, the Bulldogs, 55-0 um, to zero win over Vanderbilt. Going into the bye week, I guess I would just ask you the importance of Kirby having that sort of a I've called it a get-right game, right? We got C. Stetson play and Carson back. Uh, a lot of guys got to you know clear the bench. Everybody gets in. Uh, just kind of your takeaways from what you thought and saw of Georgia against the Commodores. You know, I think looking through the first half of the season, uh, in my opinion, Georgia has been the most consistent team week in and week out uh, throughout the the season, the SEC, and they continue to do that this week. Uh, Really good plan on offense, uh, spreading the ball around, being able to run the football. Uh, got going in the throw game in the red area a little bit. Stetson got some balls in the end zone there, got some guys, and the defense continues to to really, uh, again, replacing all those great players they had last year, uh, just continue uh, to grow um, and improving every week. I think this week and the bye week will be huge, uh, just knowing um, – Kirby and 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 kind of his philosophy a little bit. Uh, he's gonna he's gonna work on the next three opponents, maybe four opponents, uh, a little bit. Uh, he'll pick a day where he'll work on on um, Tennessee. He'll pick a day where he works on um, Kentucky. He'll pick a day where he works on Mississippi State, and then they'll start and get an early work on Florida. So uh, he'll pick out spots that he feels like that they need to work on on in all three phases, and they'll get a jump start on those teams. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned, um, you know, what Kirby's been able to do. I, I know I cover Georgia, and so people say, oh, you're just being a homer. But, man, and, and you can appreciate this because you, uh, in addition to your time at Tennessee, being on those Alabama staffs, I mean, they lost 15 guys to the NFL draft. I mean, 15 had never happened. But on top of it, Coach, 13 to the portal. Four of those guys, former starters, I mean, we have never seen – turnover like this now you were at Alabama when Bama was turning out double digits in terms of the guys they were losing and replugging and we were saying boy that's the greatest thing but to lose 28 capable football players you know you know what that's like having to replace them you've done it at Tennessee you've seen it done as a coordinator at Alabama Florida State uh, as well as Georgia just what does that mean when you're reloading that many bodies from one season to the next when when you want to 
you know, everybody talks about how good a recruiter Kirby is. I think evaluations is a huge part in this. Uh, you look at Georgia and the number of people that they lost. Uh, one thing that sticks out to me, they didn't add anybody. They didn't have to go get somebody. Uh, they had done a nice job in, in uh, evaluations, hit on their evaluations, uh, development, uh, guys coming underneath all these guys that left. Uh, so you can see that they had a plan and they had confidence in who they had signed and who they had on their team. Uh, I, I think it says a lot about um, not just Kirby, but the whole staff that he's put together and, you know, because it takes everybody working together and having a plan and uh, you kind of we're seeing it uh, the first half of the season. I mean, what they've done defensively um, to me is is really a, a crazy accomplishment, you know, considering how many players that they did lose. Yeah, Georgia's second in the nation right now in scoring defense, only behind Illinois. Illinois had played as much as schedule. I think the dogs have given up two more points, but it has been remarkable. Uh, I don't know how Kirby Smart couldn't be the front runner uh, for a lot of Coach of the Year honors. You know, it's funny. I was I was uh, joking with you about wearing a, a red sweatshirt. You know, I remember when I covered Tennessee, I came to practice with a maroon pullover that the Senior Bowl gave out, and Coach Fulmer was giving me hell about, oh, my gosh, you're this Alabama guy, you know, and I'm like, no, I mean, people are so sensitive about the colors, but but it, 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 it dawned on me, you know, I don't think we've ever really told the people the story when I called you and we said, hey, let's do this, and, you know, you kind of embrace the idea going, and you're like, yeah, you know, Mike, I love that, and I was like, really? I, I didn't, you know, I didn't really communicate with you when you were here as a coordinator, but part of the, I guess, part of the attraction to you is you like the Georgia fans. I'll let you kind of share that experience because I know it was only a couple of years, but uh, I'll let you speak to the Georgia fans about that as well. Oh yeah. So it, it was an awesome experience for me and my family. You know, our, our, our first son was born there. Just the, um, you know, the, the passion, the passion for the Georgia fan base. And uh, of course it was all a race last year, right. Getting the national championship, you know, but that, that was going all the way back to 1980 and, you know, as a coach's son, I grew up uh, probably my first memories of, of Georgia football was of Herschel Walker, right, in the I formation and, um, you know, and then following Coach Rick's career there, um, you know, just and having friends and Mike Bobo and Will Friend and, and, and uh, Kirby, you know, all work for Coach Rick and just, uh, you know, kind of having uh, not been ever been a part of it, but listening to them talk about it. Um, you know, when I had a chance to to go to Athens, to me, it was a no-brainer um, and really enjoyed our time there and um, got a chance to be around a lot of really good people and, and still have a lot of friends that are there. Yeah, it's pretty cool. You know, the SEC is kind of a community, and I know fans kind of our colors, your colors, us, them, but, you know, having worked at different places that you and I have, it's like, you know, I like ice cream, and it's just a lot of different flavors, you know, and it's all good. And uh, every place kind of has something unique about it. And so it's really cool. You know, Georgie, you notice, he's, you know, Coach Rick has moved back to the area. Coach Donnan's back in the area. Coach Dooley's here. There's some schools, and I don't need to tell you this, but when them head coaches move on, boy, it changes fast. But Georgia fans are pretty good uh, to their former coaches. I want to ask you about, speaking of uh, Tennessee uh, a moment ago, uh, that game with Alabama. And I got to tell you, man, you, you, you called it, and – um, you said that how they called that game was going to be integral. I still got Alabama fans pinging me about pass interference. I'm thinking, 
You know, Jeremy told me that the games can be called different. I, I, you're the expert on that, and you coach secondary in particular, as well as being a coordinator. But when we talk about how they can be called different, that was something you brought up. It, it kind of expand on a little bit of that, what you thought going in and then what you saw in that game. Well, when, when um, you know, we talked about it, you know, that Alabama was going to, you know, try to stop the run, and, and, and Tennessee has a vertical passing game. They're going to throw the ball down the field. And, um, you know, you throw it down there, there's going to be contact, right? And so um, it, it's a tough job. Being an official uh, at any level is a very tough job, and, uh, but there's certain calls in games that can change the outcome of the game. Uh, unfortunately, but that's part of it. And we all know that. Um, so, you know, I, I brought it up that I felt like that some of that might happen Saturday, you know, are they going to let them play down the field or is there going to be, um, you know, a flag or two that could possibly change the course of the game. And it's not just that game. It happens in a lot of games throughout the SEC. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, and as a coach on the sideline, when you're coaching a game and you see how the game's being called, does that influence the coverages you call as a coordinator? Does it influence some of the calls that you might make as a for your offensive coordinator to get on a headset and say, "Man, they're calling that tight today. Let's let's air it out." I mean, how is that that fluid? Well, I think defensively, I think um, a lot of people have the philosophy that they're going to play, uh, and you're not going to get away from what you've been successful with. Uh, I think offensively, absolutely. You know, uh, you got chances to throw the ball down the field. Uh, you got uh, good quarterbacks and players that you believe can go high point the football. Uh, and you put those defensive backs in a position to where they've got to make plays. And uh, also it brings in, you know, the back judge or the people in the back end, you know. So, um, you know, throwing it down the field sometimes is there's a lot of good things that can happen with that if you can protect. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I was just thinking about the conversations on the headsets and one of the guys that you know that Georgia fans know, Jim Chaney. And this is interesting because I believe you hired Jim away from Georgia and a guy that you dealt with quite a lot. I guess people don't really know coordinators. Obviously, they don't, they're not out in front of the media. You know, they talk once a year here. Head coach is now kind of the one voice thing. You had some insight into Jim. Jim was a guy that you were a friend with, but also – um, if you could share, enlighten us just a little bit, what made Jim special? Because obviously uh, he did some great things as a college coordinator and a guy you worked with and a, and a guy that Georgia fans saw. Uh, heck, he scored enough points to win the national title. You know that. You were on the other side of the ball when Alabama won that title and Jim and Fromm had done just enough and, and Devontae. But um, what made Jim such an effective coordinator in the SEC? Well, he's one of the smarter guys I've ever been around. Uh, Jim's a guy that uh, has has tons of experience that's done it a lot of different ways. I mean, you go back to when he was at Purdue, you know, and, and they had Drew Brees and they're throwing the ball all around the place. He's worked in the NFL. Uh, when he went to Georgia, I thought uh, his years at Georgia, when it comes to running the football, they were about as good as anybody that uh, in the country when it comes to that. He just formationally gave you a lot of different looks. Yeah, and well, and obviously, I mean, Jim did some great stuff. And I just thought that was interesting because a lot of times people don't know the story behind the story. And, of course, when a head coach is talking about his coordinator, he says A, B, and C. But, you know, obviously you're kind of unplugged at the moment from that and getting your views from 10,000 feet, as I said. It, there's, there's just nothing like that. But I want to go back to that Alabama-Tennessee game a minute ago. We did talk about the way it was called in the secondary. But but another guy, you recruited, and I guess I would ask you about Hendon Hooker. and 
how he's grown. So let me dial it back to when you brought him to Tennessee. What did you see from him then? And what has Josh been able to do to maximize what Hendon's done right now? I, Jeremy, I think he might be number two in the Heisman race right now. Well, who's he behind? That would be my question. Who do you think he's behind, Mike? <laughs> maybe the Ohio State guy still. I don't know. Maybe you're right, though. Maybe he maybe he should be the favorite after what he's done. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the body of work that Hendon Hooker's done uh, this season, I mean, uh, could you put any other quarterback at Tennessee and they have the success that they've had? I don't know. They might have. I've not watched as much of Ohio State. But, you know, the recruitment of Hendon Hooker, kind of like all the COVID, you know, I've never met him. Uh, it was one of those fast deals to where he's in the portal. He wants to – he's looking for an, uh, a new place. But when when we watched him, and, and you brought up Jim Chaney, you know, you, you saw a guy that was athletic. You saw a guy that had arm talent. Um, you saw a guy that didn't make a whole lot of mistakes. Um, you know, that's the one thing. There wasn't a lot of glaring mistakes that he made. Um, you know, when you look at the, the COVID season, uh, I think when it comes to players – um, I, I, I don't think you can kind of hold players accountable for that season and how they played. It was just very unusual. Uh, and he wanted to move on. Um, uh, I never even met Hendon Hooker, talked to him on the phone a few times. Uh, so that's really my dealings with him, you know, is, is I've never even had a face-to-face -face meeting with him and, uh, but he chose Tennessee and it kind of worked out. He fits really what, uh, Josh's system is. Um, and he's got good players around him. And, uh, you know, right now they're scoring as many points as anybody in the country. Uh, and it's like I told you when the season started, I think they're one of the few teams that can score with Alabama and Georgia. Yeah, you said the only team east of the Mississippi. That was the quote. There's some teams out west, and I don't know if we're going to see them. I saw USC got knocked out, you know, and, and some of those Big 12 teams as well. That Big 12 is uh, – TCU with the big win over Oklahoma State. They're just names and and program names and color to me until they get in the playoffs. But I kind of wonder if we might see a Big 12 team in there. And I, I guess I'd ask you about the just kind of the general landscape. I did kind of a rundown story of all the unbeatens that are still out there. You know, one of them in the SEC nobody's talking about is Ole Miss. And, I, I you know, I, Elaine Kiffin is a guy that obviously you work with, you know well. You said he can score points. Coach, Auburn rushed for over 300 yards on the Ole Miss Rebels. I guess I'd want to ask you, how real of a threat do you think Lane has? I know this next year, this next week they're playing at LSU. The following week they're playing at AM. I know your rule about difficulties, difficult stretches. Mm -hmm. And then they got Bam at home. Is Ole Miss a serious threat, though, in the West with the way Alabama's playing right now? Well, I, I don't think Ole Miss is a serious threat to win the West. OK, uh, I, 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 I don't think Ole Miss is good enough to go win four or five the, the last half of their season. I think the schedule is going to be dramatically tougher uh, than it has been on the front end. Uh, are they dangerous for Alabama in one game? Sure, they are uh, because they can score points. But uh, I think if you look at them and you compare them to, to Alabama, to Georgia, to Tennessee, I think they're a notch below. Um, and so you're right. Auburn um, had over 300 yards rushing um, and scored a lot of points. So I, I think it's just hard to sustain in this league to score that many points every week and depend on your offense. So the schedule is going to be dramatically tougher for them down the stretch. So it'll be interesting starting with the next game. Yeah, Brian, uh, I got, you know, Brian Hartson, I got to give Auburn credit. I mean, 
you hear all the stuff swirling and, and, and Auburn just goes out there and those kids fight, you know, there's something, um, you know, I've said it before, having covered Alabama and Auburn and that state, I mean, it's, it's 365. It never leaves. And those teams just, they always battle. And, and that, they, there's a certain amount of pride at Alabama and Auburn is very unique to that state. Of course, Georgia fans see that with the dogs as well, with all the great players that come from within the state. But I, I got to tip my cap to Auburn. I kept, I kept looking at the scoreboard. I said, man, they just, these guys just won't die. They just keep going and going. And we all know how it ends. We all know the coach is probably going to be gone. We all know they don't, you know, the record's sliding away, but they're just out there uh, battling out there in the West. Uh, I want to ask you about Alabama uh, picking up the pieces, right? I mean, Nick Saban, much like Kirby yourself, you guys always talked about a system. You always talked about playing to a standard regardless of the opponent. What happens on those occasions when you lose? What does Nick Saban turn into? What's going on in Tuscaloosa after a devastating defeat like that? I mean, Jeremy, they barely beat AM. They were living right. Now, this one, they kind of slide. It, it was sloppy in more respects. You don't often hear Nick Saban, Alabama, and sloppy in the same sentence. It's very rare that you see Bama make the kind of mistakes they made to open the door. But what will this be like this week be like in Tuscaloosa as they've got Mississippi State coming in there next Saturday? Right. So um, obviously you got to go back and you got to correct the mistakes that you made. And Alabama made a ton of mistakes uh, in that game. But one thing, just knowing Coach Saban, he's, he's not going to look in the rearview mirror. He's going to make the mistakes. He's going to be positive with his coaching staff. He's going to be positive with his team because, let's, I mean, when you got um, college football playoffs, uh, Alabama still controls their own destiny. So their season is in front of them, uh, and they better get ready for a good Mississippi State team this week. So um, they've got to, you know, this is the one thing about coaching. I think he's done an excellent job over the years is from 18 to 22-year-olds uh, getting them to, to move on uh, and, and go to the next, the next game. And that's something that's going to be very important for them this week because, uh, again, they control their own destiny when it comes to the college football playoffs. Yeah, I always hear coaches say, you don't, you know, Kirby say, you don't want one to become two, or you don't want to lose that game twice after, you know, they lost the national championship game to the, again, the Alabama team that you were the defensive core to. It was an, a, a classic, classic game there in Atlanta. But Kirby was back on the recruiting trail the next day. He told that story uh, when one of the, I think the late Cecil Hurt uh, asked him, you know, how do you get your guys to get over that? And Kirby said, well, there's no choice. You can't let that game beat you twice. Had to get back out there. So interesting that, the way Coach Saban quickly will correct those mistakes and move on and get ready for Mississippi State. And let's follow up with that. You told us here on the show, and I, I, I need to start listening more to you. Takes me a minute. I can be a little thick-headed. I thought Mississippi State had something going. And he said, I don't know, Mike. That's that third game we talked about. And sure enough, a Kentucky team came off the mat and beat Mississippi State in Lexington. I'm still shaking my head. I don't understand how they could lose to South Carolina one week but beat Mississippi State the next. Explain that one to me, and, and how did Kentucky do it and beat Mississippi State? Well, I think pride. You know, there's a lot of pride in Mark Stoops around his program, and there's a lot of toughness uh, and a lot of confidence. And, and, you know, they lose to Ole Miss one week, and, you know, I think they – in South Carolina, and they, they, they kind of – you know, you got to – if you start pointing fingers, you're going to be in trouble. So you kind of got to look in the mirror. And I think they've done a nice job of that. And again, in this league, it's hard to, it's hard to go on the road 
that third week of an SEC game, especially at night, and win. It's just uh, it's because the depth in the league. Uh, the people outside of the Southeast don't want to hear this, but the Southeastern Conference is the best league in the United States, and it has been for a very long time, and it probably always will be. Um, and it's because the depth top to bottom in the league. Uh, there's no weeks off. You know, so when a Georgia beats Vanderbilt 55 to zero, some people chalk that off. And to me, that shows a very good week of practice in Athens, uh, a team that was focused uh, because Vanderbilt uh, the week before they played the, they played Ole Miss, you know, right down to the end. Uh, so there's there's no there's no gimmies in the SEC. So um, I, I think it says a lot about uh, Mark Stoops and, and his staff. Yeah, you know, you're right. There's no gimmies. They were actually beating Ole Miss 20 to 17 at halftime in Nashville. Uh, and, and that's why I asked you that question about Lane Kiffin and, and the Rebels and how real might they be. There's, you know, some people are already, you know, the Tennessee fans was quite a scene. You, you've been to Neyland Stadium. You won eight games in a row there. You know how good it can get. But that was that was historically good. That takes me back to the biggest home win since 98 when they finally beat Florida. And you know the importance psychologically of getting over that hump. It just changes everything. Uh, someone asked me if that was the biggest regular season win since 98 for Tennessee. I said, absolutely not. The biggest regular season win for Tennessee was in 2001 when they beat Steve Spurrier at the Swamp as a 17-point underdog and went to the SEC title. It had much more significance. But this does set Tennessee up. But you mentioned Kentucky a moment ago. I want to ask you this because, you know, you, you dealt with the Wildcats and Mark Stoops as, you know, head-to-head. That looks like a dicey, even though it's in Neyland Stadium football, so much matchups. Do I look at Kentucky as a, a possible uh, a possible team that could upset Tennessee before they get to Georgia? Or, would you, or do, do your wheels spin ahead two weeks ahead on that? You know, I, I think looking at the schedule, I think Tennessee is is really uh, the schedule has set up well for them. Uh, over the, Since Coach Saban has been in Alabama, and it's starting to be this way with Kirby at Georgia, you know, the week after you play Alabama or you play Georgia, it's hard to get off the mat and, and, and win again, you know. So you look at Tennessee this week, they have UT Martin. That's a huge break for them. You look at their schedule when they play three SEC games in a row and the third one's on the road, it's at Vanderbilt. So, um, you know, they probably, from a scheduling standpoint, getting this win at Alabama to me is critical or was critical for them moving forward because I think it, it truly now brings Tennessee into the playoff picture. I really believe that. Um, and could Kentucky come to Tennessee and, and win possibly in a couple of weeks? Possibly. But I think this sandwich game with UT Martin will help Tennessee kind of get ready for that. And I, I really don't see that happening. I think Tennessee's probably got too much firepower. Yeah, a lot of momentum, too. And, you know, and, and speaking of how schedules set up, I think Georgia's schedule this year really worked out well for Kirby. After losing all those guys, he's needed time to develop that championship depth and and teach. And, you know, maybe, you know, the dogs haven't always looked good. I mean, the Kent State game wasn't their best. Down 10 against Missouri had to come from behind. You know, it took them six series to score against Auburn before they finally got the, you know, uh, that throttle going. Uh, and then we saw him put it together against Vandy. I guess I would ask you about the Georgia home stretch, Jeremy, because this bye week, I think it hits at the right time because coming back, they got Florida in Jacksonville, a rivalry game, even though I know you you were right about LSU and Florida too. That was an ugly game. But they got Jacksonville. Then you got Tennessee and Sanford Stadium. And then back-to-back -back road games, you know, the three things you were talking about, 
at Mississippi State, at Kentucky. Your thoughts on the bye week and the dogs' remaining schedule? Yeah, I, I, you know, you you, you kind of just said it, you know. So uh, the the Florida rivalry, I can tell you, uh, just knowing Kirby Smart, I, I knew when they played Auburn, I know what that game means to him because he was a Georgia Bulldog as a player, right? Same when it comes to to going to Jacksonville, right? Uh, Georgia will be ready to play Florida. You can count on that. They'll they'll have their best effort against Tennessee. Uh, just right now, just marking it on the calendar. Those next two are the ones that will define probably uh, Georgia, the rest of Georgia's season. You know, those two road trips. They'll that you'll see Georgia's best at Florida, and you'll see it versus Tennessee. Uh, the toughest coaching part for Kirby and his staff will be the following two weeks. Um, just, just, and, and it's just the way the SEC is. The third game's on the road. Yeah, I'm going to stick with that, Mike. State. I believe it. I, I thought I saw that Mississippi State game at the start of the year, and I said that's the one. They know Kentucky's tough. They play them every year. They know yeah. that's that bloody nose game like Mississippi State used to be back in the 90s. That's Kentucky now. You're going to leave there with a bloody nose and a few extra bruises. They know what to expect there. But Mississippi State, as I've heard it said before, it's not the end of the world, but you can see the end of the world from Starkville. That's going to be a, quite an experience for those players to be that remote, even though now they, they do have some hotels that are a little bit closer, I understand. But that's still way out there, and you see a lot of stars in the sky. There ain't a whole lot of skyline out there. So that's going to be interesting, Coach. Any uh, uh, parting thoughts on any games this week, anybody, any of these games intrigue, Ole Miss, LSU, uh, we mentioned Mississippi State, Alabama, Texas A&M, South Carolina. You, we've got a mutual friend there in Freddie Kitchens. Uh, how big is this game for the Gamecocks after they stunned Kentucky and had a bye week? Uh, I was going to bring it up, Mike. I think this is a huge game for for uh, Shane Beamer in his program and Jimbo in his program. You know, so um, South Carolina sitting there. If 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 they got Texas A&M coming in at home. Uh, if they can find a way to win this game, uh, I believe that puts South Carolina at five and two, maybe, uh, <laughs> you know, and where does it put Texas A&M? You know, all of a sudden Texas A&M wants to be there with Alabama, Georgia, and I guess now we say Tennessee, but they want to be in the upper echelon of the SEC and have been a, a couple of years. Uh, but uh, this is a huge game for both programs uh, and moving forward. Shane's looking to kind of get over the hump and take that next step. And, and Jimbo's trying to stay there a little bit or kind of get off the mat. So this will this will be, be the game that will be the most interesting to me all, all weekend. Yep, I'm with you. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. Coach, I really appreciate you joining us. As always, your insight is great. Uh, the background information, the stories behind the stories, it's really cool to – to, like I said, learn a little bit more about uh, Georgia, learn a little bit more about some of the names and faces and and the coach's mentality, right? I mean, it's you get locked in a room with Kirby and Saban, and it's so intense. I know you guys are putting in 70, 80 hours for years, right? We're not talking about seasonally. So it's interesting to hear you speak. We can hear a little bit of that Kirby speak, a little bit of that Saban speak when you kind of come up with some of these concepts that you share. I want to thank everybody for joining us this week. It's been a lot of fun. George, of course, off on Saturday. Uh, we're still going to have our Dog Nation programming. Jeff Centella on Wednesday night. Don't forget Friday night, our Go With The Flow picks. 
My picks are probably going to sound a lot more like what Jeremy Pruitt tells us moving forward. I need to start listening to the coach a little bit more. I wouldn't have got them game wrong this last week, but uh, enjoy the rest of the week. We'll be back on schedule again next week with Kirby's press conferences and, and whatnot as Georgia prepares for the Florida game down there in Jacksonville. For Jeremy Pruitt, this is Mike Griffith. Uh, have a great week, everybody.